7.30 p.m., a body was recovered from the Red River near the Alexander Docks. For six serial killers to be operating in that town. An Amber Alert is still in effect in parts of Canada for a two-year-old girl An Ontario woman says her father committed brutal murders and buried the body. Millions of dollars worth of maple syrup has been siphoned off from storage in Quebec. With the crime covered up. had planned for a year to steal it and kill its owner. You ever been interviewed by the police in a, in a room like this before? for the True Crime, Toronto True Crime Film Festival. Huge thanks to Investigation Discovery who are sponsoring this panel. But yeah, I'd just like to say like who we have on our panel here today. Um, we've got our moderator, Antti Donahue, who is a writer and cultural commentator. Uh, Keila Woodard, supervising producer at Investigation Discovery. Catherine Leggy, uh, is, is that how you say your last name? Leg. Leg. Catherine Legge, <laughs> filmmaker, director of the film Met While Incarcerated. Um, Karen Herland, who is a lecturer in pop culture, sexuality, and true crime at Concordia University, uh, as well as a lecturer at the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies and the Monstrum Society uh, in Montreal. And we've got Remy Bennett, who is filmmaker, writer, and chronicler of crime and noir writer John Gilmore. But yeah, I would like to hand it over to Anne Donahue and take it away. Cool. Hi, everybody. Um, hope everyone likes my top. It's new and I wear it for all of you. <laughs> So here we are. I love uh, it. Thank you. Just compliments. If we could just make this about me for the next 60 minutes, it would not be upsetting. First and foremost, we'll go down. We'll start with you. Keila, I know your name. Don't worry. I wasn't like you, random girl. So what drew you to true crime? And I ask this of everybody. Ooh, um, well, my background, I am a uh, producer for a crime network, a popular one, uh, down in the States. And uh, we just kind of, we saw that uh, crime just in general, the crime genre was uh, really popping, I guess, not just in the United, in the United States, but worldwide. So uh, the Discovery Networks decided to start a crime network uh, just to address this. And so I just kind of segued over into the crime format. And I've been there for about 10 years. And we've learned a lot. So like I wasn't an organic, like I didn't come from like a, a true crime background or I wasn't writing or I wasn't doing film, uh, film for true crime. I was just a producer general. And then I just kind of segued into this and then learned as I went. Okay, um, I uh, started out as a kid fascinated with true crime. I liked reading the Max Haynes true crime stories, um, alarming my parents with my fascination <laughs> with murder and mayhem. Um, and I, that translated into me becoming a journalist uh, and being interested in solving the puzzle, in the whys of the world and how, you know, what the whys are behind dramatic things that happen and being involved in uh, extraordinary moments in ordinary people's lives that you get very hooked on when you get to be, you know, uh, to jump in an intimate way into the midst of something incredible, usually bad, happening to someone. And then from there, I stumbled into this world that I just made a documentary about, which Met While Incarcerated is about uh, successful women who have married men who are in prison for violent crimes. And so I spent about three years in the world of the prison wives and their large 
and secretive community um, of people that you probably know and work with or, um, you know, are, are part of everyday life that we may not know uh, are with someone who's done something terrible. And that is kind of what, you know, how it's come full circle of where I felt like I went from kind of watching crime to researching crime to then knowing crime in a way, a personal way, which has changed it for me. Um, I, it's interesting, we started this conversation earlier, like, like Anne said, and, and it's partly because we have so many overlaps. I also studied as a journalist. I was interested in crime, you know, reading Helter Skelter under the covers <laughs> as a little kid. And, and there was something about the true and true crime, the, this is a real story, but this is also storytelling. So where does the fact and fiction blur and how do we decide what justice is and who's right and who's wrong? that really fascinated me and having later done work with sex workers and people who are considered outsiders, quote unquote, and understanding them to be people and also these images that the storytelling creates, I've become really fascinated in how, how we tell the stories we tell and what we're trying to say with them. So that's my interest. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of this comes from a childhood moment that's, that's formative. Uh, where you sort of, um, that morbid fascination becomes almost an obsession. Um, so when I was little, I was very into, um, you know, monsters and horror and uh, vampire lore. Um, and then I, that kind of segued into learning about um, true life crime cases. Um, so everything at school when I was little, I would always try to subvert so that I could somehow be researching crime. Um, so whether it was like a book report that we were doing, or we had to pick like a celebrity or a famous icon from history to study for an entire year. So I picked Jack the Ripper when I was 11, <laughs> but then I would like dress up like him and came to, came to school with like a mustache and would like dip my papers in like tea to like stay them. So this ended up becoming sort of a bizarre method thing that lasted for a while. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then also when The Alienist came out, I think I was in seventh grade, so I did a whole art piece about, um, like, young prostitutes who were, who were murdered, and I kind of got interested in that. It's such a great book. I mean, of this collage, and then, then you start thinking about, like, you know, more in-depth, like, social concepts surrounding these crimes, and then it gives you a great insight to, like, that moment in history as well. And, and then when I got into high school, similar thing happened. I started becoming obsessed um, with the executioner song, Norman Mailer's book, after I read um, In Cold Blood, and then, you know, was very interested in that intersection between um, sort of like an artist or a novelist depiction of um, the personal aspects of, of a criminal, and then the, the greater like, historical context of that. Um, so yeah, I think that. Okay, so what I think is cool is all of you come from, come at true crime from very, very distinctive angles. All of you have met women and met victims. You've met um, true crime obsessives, etc. And your relationships with them are very different based on the work that it is that you do. So this is kind of a two-parter. And like, jump in whenever, because I kind of like the idea of a conversation. But why do you think now we're seeing this, like, oh my God, women love true crime boom, even though it's existed forever. And two, how do your relationships with the idea of women loving true crime reflect your own positions? Yeah, I mean, there's just, there's content, right? There's content everywhere. Um, and I think from 
the root of, of my network, as I said before, it was just more of a male adventure, outdoorsy. If you've heard of Discovery Channel, probably, you know, you think of Shark Week. So if, you know, a brand like that can harness in on, okay, something's happening out there in the zeitgeist where, you know, people are really fascinated by these crime stories. Let's start an entire new network about it. Um, we've just seen it, I mean, from soup to nuts, we started it, and from the beginning, we just were 60% female. We always thought, okay, it's crime, you know, I guess we're probably going to have more of a male following, just brainlessly thinking that, but uh, more and more, it went from 60% to more like 65, and a lot of our shows are kind of 72% female, and in basic cable television in the U.S., um, we are the number one network for ages 25 to 54 uh, cable ad supported for women. So we're like, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think, you know, um, just having an array of showing different sides of crime. So it's not just, you know, the serial killer, right? Like the, the, the slashers, the, you know, green, green river killers, those types. Yes, they're there. But, I mean, we also try to do um, social justice and um, innocence projects and um, showing domestic violence and just showing different lenses. And I think just a wide array, a uh, buffet, if you will, of, um, <laughs> of showing how women uh, navigate true, true crime or how we are victims, we're also perpetrators. Um, I think our, our, our viewers just tap into different angles of it. And, um, you know, we're just trying to, we're there to listen to, the, to see what we get viewer mail every Thursday. Do this, cover this. Um, and so it's just, it's research on our part, and um, I think that women, it's its a very complex, um, complex field. I don't think there's one answer for why women love true crime. The big theme in my documentary is about how we have this version of us and them when it comes to crime that, in, in fact, doesn't exist at all. Um, you know, we are all the same people, and, you know, now we realize that the people who commit crimes are the people that we know, um, and we see that, and I think the ability to be much more a part of the story is something that women are interested in because we like a puzzle and we like the complexity. And the women in particular in my film, rather than the black and white, they're very much in the shades of Justice's Grey. And I think they like the idea that, and, and they feel very powerful in the idea that they get to decode something by knowing more information than other people do. So they get to see their partner as someone other than a headline. They see him as a complex person who has um, a dynamic range, just like the rest of us. So I think that might lead into the trend. Yeah, I mean, the, the why now? I think we're in a period of time where facts have become very flexible. So what's true? and whose truth, right? So I think that there's some of that happening. And I also, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people will say women are interested in true crime because they want to understand, you know, they want to protect themselves, they want to know what dangers are out there. I think we're all very aware of what dangers are out there, and they're not always the scary guy hiding in the bushes, right? The dangers are in the justice system that kind of doesn't bother to process rape kits for years and years, and the danger is in the person in your house versus the stranger out there. So I think that, you know, none of us have talked about our concerns as victims, that there is a way in which we can think about true crime as victim, but we can also think about putting ourselves in the role of the investigator or putting ourselves in the role of the killer. And I think even fictional shows like Killing Eve are allowing us to 
to play with those margins as well. And it was interesting, last year I went down to um, CrimeCon in Indiana, because um, I was writing a few pieces, um, and, you know, I think it's, like you were saying, it's almost dangerous to classify this one uh, reason for why women are interested, as in, you know, we're all victims, we... When I, when I went down there, I definitely, I guess, had a little more of a fetishistic, like, head on, which I, I can be guilty of as well, where I think, you know, um, women um, do want to understand and can identify, but I think we do have another side to us that are, you know, interested in horror, interested in style, interested in almost the aesthetics of horror, the sexiness of it, the fantasy of it, um, but we can encompass, I think, all of those things and bring a humanity um, to our exploration of that. So in terms of the intention behind, um, you know, a true crime piece of art or writing, it, it's about, I think, looking at the intent behind that, behind the creator of that. What's the motive in creating that? Is it created to scare you? Is it created to um, create an illusion of us versus them and the monster um, using this like, very gothic language? Or is it about exploring the human condition? So in, in my experience, I feel like women and friends of mine have, have I don't know, this sort of wider um, ability to like encompass all those things. How do we stop ourselves from sensationalizing true crime? Because there is a sensationalist aspect to it. Even with serial, like, we get very carried away with Edna's story. We don't talk about Hayes' story or Hayes' family. And you brought that up backstage. So, like, what do we do? And, like, are we doing it wrong? Like, help us. <laughs> help us. Yeah. I don't know, I think as an, uh, I think as women, uh, and, and, just, and not even just as women, in general, I think the, the what tends to get overblown. Like, when there's a crime, you know, it's not about as how many people did he hack up, or, you know, or, or the ages, or the victim. It's, sometimes, it's not the what, it's, it's the why, and I think, um, in our treatment of it, it is, it is a dance, because from a network, you know, there's that, you have to acknowledge the the soulless part of it, which, you know, it's, it's true crime entertainment, that icky word, the, um, the ratings grab, what, what's gonna make, uh, what's gonna make the most money, sadly. But also, you know, you have to be responsible because someone's, this is, there are victims out there. There was collateral damage. Um, everyone can see this. It's online, it's on cable, it's on TV, and there are people out here who have been personally affected. So what we try to do as producers is we reach out to those people to see if they want to tell their story. And very often, most often actually these days, they do. Um, so we try to, we, we come at it from, in most, in, we try in most cases for, for victim advocacy. And if they're willing to tell their story, we're a platform for them to, to have a voice to a crime that everyone thinks they know, but you didn't hear it from this lens. So to temper the sensationalism that goes with it, I think, you know, we try to be a, a beacon, but at least a platform for people to to have a chance to say something. It's tough because you want to be, you know, especially in television, you want to be dramatic, you want it to be stylistic, you know, we're, we're very interested in telling a fascinating story and, and the most dramatic moments and key emotional moments are the story usually and you you choose those so I really struggled with I had all of these characters to choose from of who do I choose why do I choose them and frankly how much detail do I tell because you know even with I chose three prison wives I actually found out details about their partner's crime that they don't know 
And I didn't tell them about them. I thought, you know, really, like, that's for them to find out. If they don't go back and read the newspapers, then, you know, they don't go back and read the newspapers. And I struggled a lot of times with the way that I felt about them and their partners. I felt afraid for them. I felt afraid for myself sometimes with the people that I was involved in. I thought, why am I doing this? At one point, I wanted to give all the money back to the network and say, I never want to talk to these people again. So there's a real struggle with the reality of true crime when you're dealing with these people in a, in a real way. And I tried to always balance that with partly I'm glad I took so long to do it, which is the nature of making a film like that, but I was glad that I had that time because I processed it in a way I wouldn't probably have normally. And I do have a lot of sympathy for victims, and I had a really hard time at first having sympathy for people who committed crimes, but I found a place for that, and I think that it was something that it, it's, it, it literally is the story that until you know someone, that it happens to, you know, I interviewed a mom who was a, the perfect mom, you know, she did everything she needed to do. She played by the rules. She, you know, took care of her children and her son, you know, murdered, raped and murdered a woman and went to prison for first degree murder. And I talked to her about how that feels and how you reconcile it. And, and I would never feel the same way about crime again. Like we all say, oh, you wouldn't feel that way if it happened to you always from a victim perspective, but we never say it from being the person who loves someone who did something bad. And those people exist too, and we never hear their stories. So it is until it happens to you, you don't really comprehend that. So I think it's really important that we take the sensationalism and realize that, you know, it's it's got a place that where it's real for people. I'm glad you talked about that sort of fetishistic part of it, because I think that some of the ways that women feel like they're able to approach this material is is that way, right? You're not supposed to like it, so if you perform liking it, if you make it about, you know, this is so cool, then you can kind of, you know, just get through that way. But it is about, once you start to really think through what you're talking about and who you're talking about, something, I think, I think we've all experienced it in one way or another. Something shifts, and you, and you recognize the power of these stories. Like a lot of these stories, Jack the Ripper, right? Was I was also fascinated with. Um, is is as much about teaching women how they're supposed to behave. Don't be out on the street at night. Don't be alone. Don't be doing that stuff, right? Um, so there's something about being able to subvert those messages and think through what stories we want to be telling and why we want to be telling the stories that moves it away from the sensational, which is just a kind of easy first entry point, but I don't think a lot of people stay there. Do you guys think there's this redemptive narrative that's woven through a lot of true crime, whether it be the idea of like you're meeting women who are with men who are violent offenders and do they think they can save them? Or the, even the idea of as true crime consumers, we think that we can save ourselves by not acting a certain way. Do you think redemption plays a large role in this? I think redemption's a big part of it, and, and who deserves it and what it means is definitely, uh, um, you know, they. everybody I talk to feels redeemed. Like, I, I interviewed this one woman, and she was, you know, maybe someone you'd think more typically would marry uh, or be with a, a, a 
an inmate. And she had the most fascinating story. She ended up not wanting to be part of the film, and I went a different direction. But she was a sex worker until she was 50, retired. Um, and uh, she told her story of how she ended up with a man who's in prison, who's uh, a dangerous offender in Canada and will never get out. He's a hitman um, and killed multiple people. Even when he was out on parole, he killed someone um, and went back into prison. And she talked about this love affair that they had that was really romantic and, and fascinating. And I said to her, don't you, like, how do you deal with the fact that he's taken a life? And she, you know, she was this smoking, like she was sitting on the couch smoking and she laughed this like, you know, throaty laugh. And she said, you know how many lives I've taken? You know how many people I destroyed in my life? And she said, more than him. She said, the people that he took, you know, if there's a saying amongst the prison folk, if you're in the game, you're fair game. And he was in a world where everybody he killed, she said, were innocent people. So she felt that was different. She's like, you know, I destroyed marriages. I destroyed lives. I destroyed children's lives with these men that I was involved with. And she said, I've done worse than him. And so it really brought it into perspective for me, this idea of, you know, what redemption means is really just going on another day and imagining you deserve to, I guess. I don't, I don't know exactly how I feel about the concept of redemption as part of it. I mean, I think, I, I think that there's, I and mean, we've all talked about this in different ways, I think there's a lot to be said about trying to navigate and blur that us and them line, and crime is one sort of obvious place where there's supposed to be good guys and bad guys, right? The white hats and the black hats. But, you know, I grew up watching Buffy and, and it got very messy who the good guys and the bad guys were, right? And I loved that. Like, I loved that. That was, the, what, that was what really mattered to me, was that sometimes really great people make really bad choices and sometimes really terrible people do something shockingly, amazingly good. And for me, the best kind of true crime pulls that out or, or plays with those lines. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit before about um, the, I wouldn't say the fallacy, but the, um, the purported trend of women being in love with criminals and with serial killers. And you were discussing sort of the reality of what that really looks like. Um, and I guess redemption sort of ties into that because we were talking about earlier the idea that it's, um, you know, for a woman to look at someone and see their circumstances, understand what they've been through, and, you know, I mean, get, I wouldn't say giving a second chance because it's kind of a silly way to look at it, but um, I think that sensitivity um, and that investment, I don't know if that's a female trait in particular, but I can see that. The people who, you know, that there are groupies, like the prison wives category fits a spectrum and my character on death row talks about the letters he gets he's like oh my god you would not believe the letters that women send you like just right off the bat you know full graphic sexual content and he's like I never write back to those crazies you know and this is the death row and so there's definitely those people and they're you know believe someone wants to be a tourist in the misery of their life and their victims and I think that uh, is those people exist but the women who do end up sticking with this it's a very hard life 
it's impossible system to navigate. You know, they sacrifice friends and family and status and within their community because of a person that they've chosen to be with, and they have to fight for them. And I find that they are fighters. They believe in justice. They're people who come from a, a place in their community where they are, uh, um, whether they're writers or, you know, military veteran or, uh, you know, uh, nurse, uh, social workers, they're people who understand that the rules we think to, of life don't apply. Good guys and bad guys don't exist. And I think they get all of that complex nature of life and they're willing to fight, you know, pick a cause and fight for it. Um, but it's a very hard life. So it really isn't romantic. It's got a romantic beginning and there's definitely a very romantic moment. And the one thing I know that defines a prison wife is that each one of them, there's this moment where they're like, we were writing to each other. It's so romantic. And these men write these incredible letters and they're so attentive and they build this relationship. And then they say, and then I went to visit him. And it takes a long time to get access to visit someone in prison. And so these people are well along a relationship. And they talk about that time they first walk into a prison. You go through security and, you know, you have to worry about what you're going to wear and getting turned away. And then you're around all of these criminals and you meet this person for the first time. And most people, for me, I'm like, that's the moment where you say, this is fucking crazy. Like, what am I doing here? Versus, you know, he writes nice letters. And then, but for them, that's usually the moment where they say, I'm in. And that is, for me, what defined a real prison life, is that she is exposed to all of that, and she says, yeah, this is for me. And I still haven't figured that one out. Um. I think we talk, like, I mean, we talk so much about killers themselves, obviously, and, like, crimes themselves, but the way we tend to cover victims is very sliding scale, right? Like, there are, like, a lot of sex workers are victims of serial killers or of violence, and it takes sometimes dozens of them to go missing, or even we look at the missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada, where it's just, like, no, like, the government doesn't care. But then you mentioned earlier that Edgar Allan Poe quote, which is... Uh, which is, there is nothing more poetical than a beautiful dead girl. Right. Edgar Allan Poe. So how do we make this more of, like, an egalitarian situation? Like, how do we begin to still pay attention to women who are killed or men who are killed or trans people who are killed? And how do we include everybody as opposed to just being, like... This is a picturesque situation. This is a Lacey Peterson. This is a JonBenet Ramsey. Like, where do we even begin? Is it our own coverage that we need to start changing? Is it our own discussions? Uh, I, just from a network perspective, it is tough to tell um, the stories that you really want to tell in an hour crime show, right? Because we're sort of geared up to, okay, give me the background, give me the action of what happened, and then it's all wrapped up, the bad guy goes to prison. Um, it's not necessarily, at least on our air, a format where you can really get into the redemptive arcs or learning about prison wives um, or people in relationships or, or uh, wrongfully accused uh, folks in jail. Um, I think those formats, those really long arcs, um, are, are better served in, in documentaries. And I think the challenge for us in true crime is to, to try to really get into 
uh, the different lenses, the aspects. It's not always about the young, uh, you know, soccer girl that was going for a scholarship that was blonde and was found. I mean, that's always like, you know, the easy get, right? That's the, that's the ratings grab. But I think um, our viewers, our viewers are, are telling us um, they're ready for the next thing. Like, show me more. Yeah, and I think, I think we've kind of come full circle to one of your earlier questions. I think because we have podcasting so we can have the 12-hour, 10-hour investigation into find, like understanding how the justice system worked as well. Like the current season of In the Dark, where Curtis Flowers has been tried six times for the same crime, with what you find out fairly early on in the series is a lot of manufactured evidence and a very racially motivated prosecution that made it abundantly clear who was going to be heard and who wasn't and how this trial was going to pan out time after time. And and you were talking about the missing and murdered women and Connie Walker's um, finding Cleo is another really great example. All of these allow us to have the time and because we now have the opportunity to podcast and binge watch and and really take a deeper dive than an hour-long show or an episodic show can provide. I think that we're beginning to understand the gaps in how the justice system works and the gaps in how our assumptions of always having the good guys and the bad guys sometimes don't equip us for dealing with what happens in the world. Yeah, there was something I was thinking about too about Eileen Moore, that's what we were talking about, and just also like the sentencing of women who are murderers, right. um, and how that is skewed and sort of tainted by this vitriol that we have for women who commit crimes, which um, seems to be like very incongruous with the if you mirror the um, way we look at men who commit violent crimes. Um, so there's there's that demonization too, which is sort of an interesting thing to. Think about there's a writer named Beverly Lowry. Have you guys heard of her? Mm -hmm. She's amazing. She wrote this book called Crossed Over, um, which is about um, a woman named Carla Faye Tucker who um, murdered her. It was like a friend of her boyfriend's. I believe it was with a pickaxe. Um, but her story is very intense. She was um, a young drug addict. She was, you know, sexually abused. She was living a, like a, you know. A very unhinged life and committed a crime under the influence of like a lot of drugs and alcohol. Um, and then she was in the press, like painted as this murdering monster, totally demonized. And this woman, Beverly, had lost her son um, in an accident. And, and after he died, he, she this is when she started to become sort of more interested in, in crime in general and like delving into that. So she started um, visiting um, Carla. In, in jail and then got to know her personally and wrote this like beautiful memoir about their relationship and kind of allowing Carla to actually tell her story um, and it's 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 beautiful but I so I think like for a woman in my mind a only woman could write that book. It's interesting though I did a bunch of research for a series about women who kill and you would know about this subject as well um, but women you know there's a bunch of different patterns of women who kill but what I found interesting is women actually, most, um, even some of the most famous killers have received much less punishment than men get. Mm. They, many of them are out walking around living normal lives right now who have committed terrible crimes. I think of Carla Hamalka, she's an example we all know of. But that's not actually, she's not the exception. 
If you look at some of the most famous cases, many of those women are out now. They're living normal lives. You would never know who they are or where they are. They served much shorter sentences, and their partners have served these extremely long sentences, and they're still monsters. And these women, you know, get to go on and have these lives, which I find really interesting. At the same time, they... Um, you know, go undetected for longer because we don't believe that they might do it. Mm -hmm. And I had when Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth, what's her name? Elizabeth West. Westlaufer. When I remember listening to CBC radio and I was in the midst of my research at the time and I looked at a lot of nurses who were killers, serial killers. And, uh, I, and they came on the radio that these people had been dying. And I said, like, they're all making excuses. Oh, nurses are so understaffed. They're overworked. And, like, it must have been a nursing shortage and accidents happened and they have someone from the union on and they were interviewing them. And it's like, no, she's a killer. It's a pattern, you know? Like, she for sure did it. So it was sort of this, you know, we were excusing that there's no way a, a nurse and this nice lady. And when, when capital punishment was still a thing in Canada, I, I did some research way, way back in the teens and 20s and even before, it was almost unheard of that a woman would be hanged regardless of what she'd done. There was always going to be a last-minute reprieve and some reason to pardon or commute to a life sentence regardless of the crime because you just could not fathom yeah. that. But, but again, I think that there's something in there about agency and power, and that's maybe partly what we're talking about as well, right? In that a lot of criminals act out of a sense of frustrated powerlessness and you just, you never, you never accord women the same level of agency you do men in the criminal justice system or anywhere else, right? Yeah. Women are always under someone's influence or something, right? There's some excuse. It is, it is common that when we, when we cover um, female killers um, on ND and just generally what I've seen just as a that your friend, um, consumer, fans uh, of, of the genre, a lot of times the women uh, perpetrators were victims themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we have this big show in the U.S. called Snapped, where it's just about um, basically women who have had enough. Oftentimes they're domestic abuse survivors. We have a show, um, IEP, a show called Deadly Women. I think we're in like season 12 now. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, these women do unbelievably awful things um, to oftentimes their own family members, but sometimes, and oftentimes it stems from a place of abuse. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I always wonder, you know, what brings women to watch these shows, particularly of other women committing, committing acts of mm -hmm. violence, and it's, are we searching for humanity there? Are we putting ourselves in that situation, or do we see, do we have a boyfriend who kind of acts like that, or, you know, I think... For me, I'm always trying to figure out how would I respond to this situation, and and then another part of it is you're kind of a voyeur. It's voyeur, voyeuristic, where it's like, okay, well, she went off the deep end. We definitely wouldn't you know, push it off the window. But <laughs> there's just a spectrum, and I just think when we're watching women um, commit violent acts um, against, particularly against family members, oftentimes it's a husband and boyfriend. Um, there's just some kind of commonality there, and there is humanity there because oftentimes it's it comes from a place of abuse. Okay, so I'm gonna ask one last question and then turn it over for a couple Q and A's. So we'll keep this part short and succinct. How has the way you love true crime changed the most since you first delved into it? Like, why do you love it now? 
Like, if you had to give a slogan. Love a slogan. I don't know. For me, I guess it's women are survivors. And um, I... There's, it's a hard question for me as to, to why, but I think I do get inspired by seeing um, it's it's an endurance play where women have to overcome all sorts of things domestically, whether it's a tough relationship or it's seeing your children, uh, you know, empty nesters or divorcees. They're just regular pedestrian um, situations and, and points of life that happen to all of us but also happens to all of them and the women who uh, we cover on our network. And I think for me, what brings me to the table and a lot of our viewers to the table are just the commonalities of just seeing something that seems very ordinary and then it just going super sideways. <laughs> um, I think those typically are the stories that get the most attention and those are the ones that tend to resonate. So, I mean, I think that's what I see, just being able to, to relate in some way. I think it's like the monster, you know, we don't know who the monster is, is what I've learned. You think you know, and, the, and I've never met a monster, but I was, uh, quickly, I was just saying, I have a character on death row, everyone he knows is a murderer, um, he's been there 20 years, and I was telling him a story one day of my daughter going to school and there being a threat at her school, a gun threat, and I was dropped, had to drop her off at school and leave her there worrying like that something could happen to her. And he and I had a phone call, scheduled phone call, and I said, I'm very worried about this. And we got off topic. I said, you've been in for 20 years. You've seen what's going on out here. What do you guys think? Like, what are the guys inside saying about this? And he said, we just can't believe what's going on in the world right now. <laughs> and he started naming off, because they all watch the news, and he's like, started naming off, you know, all of these uh, terrifying incidents, Vegas and Sandy Hook, and this was even before the most recent ones. We had this fascinating conversation about what's going on out here and what all of he and his murderous friends think of, you know, what we've done with the world. And he said to me at one point, he's like, who does that? <laughs> I will never forget that moment because for him, he those are monsters, you know, and he's someone who you would think he and his friends are the monsters and he doesn't see himself like them. So that was the big change for me. That is a great answer. Uh, sorry, it sounds sarcastic. That's just my voice. I just sound sarcastic all the time. I have time for like one or two questions. If you're quick, let's, just, or if you're, I mean, maybe like rapid fire the shit out of this. I don't know. Does anyone have any questions? And no questions? You have a question. What do you find the most frustrating about true crime? I think for me personally, and also I think just from what I see from viewer mail, um, Lack of closure sometimes. I mean, I think when we're watching a story, uh, you know, we're with it. I think the journey oftentimes in this format is almost as resonant as the destination. But you really do want the, the good guys to win and the bad guys to be in prison. And that doesn't always happen. So it is frustrating when you want to tell these stories and we're picking the stories to tell. Um, and as a gatekeeper, I mean, you have to take that. That's a responsibility that... Um, you know, I know that I have, and I try to be very responsible with it. It's okay, this story should get a platform, this story maybe shouldn't. Um, but some of the stories that maybe won't rate well, because there isn't a nice tiny bow, like tidy bow at the end where everything's kind of solved at the end. Um, it's putting those stories out there that should be told, um, 
but necessarily won't be popular or, or get the number that you want. Um, that's that's for, as a true crime producer. That's kind of the dance. Um, it's frustrating to to kind of walk that balance. I would agree. It's very hard to choose stories and what you tell, but you know that you have an audience you need to engage them. You can't get into the detail or the complexity you might want. You can't tell the full story in the way you might want to. So I try to find the things that you can, the lessons you can find within the sexier stories. But yeah, that's very frustrating. We, we were talking before in that famous conversation that you all mentioned <laughs> 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 about Michelle McNamara, but frustrating, right? About the energy and dedication and time she spent creating that story and, and not being able to finish the telling. And then, what, six weeks later? Mm-hmm. The resolution and, sh- and she's not there. Talk about crunch. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That is, it's like, it's resolved and so not resolved. Oh my God. And reading that, I'm actually reading that right now. And, and, <laughs> and reading that with that knowledge, like, gives it such a more loaded experience. That's just, you know, we, none of us will ever find culture. And I think I think that's that's something that's also interesting, that there is really no such thing as closure. It's more finding like personal peace, I guess. Right. Um, but I, I guess I feel I, I, I always find it weird when people say I love true crime. <laughs> and because and like I say that sometimes by accident that I'll have to be like, I'm sorry, sorry, I don't love true crime. I don't love like horrible crimes happening. I I'm interested in it. So I think the thing of it also feeling like a fad even recently can be frustrating sometimes because it's like I, I don't I, I don't know. It just feels a little bit like oof. Mm. I'm walking away from something real. Like I think I have, I'm going to go work on a comedy show now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away from all these people and their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just frustrated. We never found out what the Best Buy phone call was all about in the first <laughs> season of Serial, but here we are. Um, this has been the best. You guys are amazing. Um, this panel is closed for business. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. Um, clap for them. Yeah.